You're listening to a podcast from 702. Indeed it is, and we've got one of our country's best book reviewers and book journalists with us, Andrea van Veek. Uh, we love having you on the show. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Of course, I love being here. We haven't had you in a long time, so you've probably read, like, with your ferocious reading, a whole library of books since then. I have no clue which ones you've brought with today, but um, you and I have different interests, which is one of the reasons we love having you on, so we can expand what... The Eusebius Mackay's show focuses on. Uh, so over to you immediately. Uh, there's a nice big fat one there. Well, the first one that I'd like to talk about um, that your producer actually mentioned to me and that's very topical at the moment, probably the most talked about book internationally at the moment is Margaret Atwood's follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale and it's called The Testaments. Mm. Um, it's it's probably been one of the closely guarded secrets in the book world since Harry Potter, actually. It was kept under lock and key. Uh, nobody got review copies ahead of time. Um, the only people who got to read it was the Booker Prize Committee. Oh, wow. Um, and that's that's why she's been awarded or co-awarded the, the Booker Prize uh, very recently, a couple of weeks ago, um, because the committee was allowed to read it. By the way, it's quite fascinating, the distributions with authors that are that like big because often the releases happen on the same day right like around the world and stuff yes so they also in terms of that secrecy that you talk about there's very strict rules and protocols around making sure that nothing gets gets leaked and accidentally put on the shelf before the time absolutely so like i said closely guarded secrets um we didn't i mean i didn't get an advanced copy i got the book on the day that it was released so i had to read it very very quickly hmm. Well, tell us about it. So um, this book, as I said, is the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. But The Handmaid's Tale famously ends on this hectic cliffhanger. Um, the narrator gets into a truck um, and you don't know where she goes. And uh, so, you know, you spent this whole book mm. with this character and you don't know what happens to her. It's, it, it could be anything. It could be a good ending. It could be a bad ending. Hmm. And you just don't know. And it ends with this line that says, any questions? And you're like, hell yes, questions. Um, but this book very cleverly uh, doesn't actually follow on from that narrator's story. Uh, Margaret Atwood for many, many years didn't want to write a sequel. The Handmaid's Tale was written in the mid-80s, so it's been over 30 years since uh, we last heard from Margaret Atwood um, on this particular story. Um, And she said that she decided to write a sequel because people were talking to her about the setting of the book, the Mm. place where this is set, and that is Gilead. And Gilead is this very authoritarian, um, very religious society that is full of misogyny. Um, And it is a place where a lot of women are kept as sort of concubines um, and ritually raped every month in order to reproduce yep. because in this society the fertility rates are fallen very few women are producing children um, and so the ones who are able to produce children are kept as sort of concubines in this society um, and uh, so well I mean that's the setting but the, the question has always been how did this society happen mm-hmm. um, how does something like this arise and funnily funnily enough or perhaps not funnily enough people have been drawing real parallels between Gilead 
and what is happening in the world at the moment, particularly in the United States, mm. with um, especially in some of the southern states where the government is uh, restricting reproductive rights, um, banning abortions and that sort of thing. So uh, a lot of parallels being mm. drawn between how these societies arise. And Margaret Atwood very cleverly parallels this in, in her book. So mm. the Testaments then explores how does Gilead arise? How does the society arise? Okay. Um, and it's set 15 years after the the end of The Handmaid's Tale. So there's this long span. Um, there are three characters in the Testaments, and the book focuses on the dreaded aunts. Now, the aunts are the ones who manage the handmaids or the concubines. They enforce uh, all these rules upon women. They're the ones who who make sure that they uh, stay on their path, um, that they don't stray. <laughs> They're very cruel, very, very cruel, famously. Um, and the head of the aunts, uh, people who have watched the TV show will know as Aunt Lydia, played brilliantly by Anne Dowd. Um, she's absolutely terrifying. She's incredibly powerful. So it's interesting that there are still some powerful women in Gilead, mm. um, but they're the ones who oppress others. Mm. Um, and so Margaret Atwood is focusing on the aunts in the Testaments. Mm. Um, the question that was posed in The Handmaid's Tale is whether, uh, you know, to try and get women to imagine themselves as the main character of Fred, of, of being oppressed and what it could be like mm. in this kind of society. Mm. The Testaments, on the other hand, try to get you to imagine yourself could you ever be an aunt? Could you ever be the woman, the woman who suppresses other women? That's really fascinating. Yes, because that that is also such a powerful intersection. What what's happening in global discourse around misogyny and, of course, structural violence against women that is an intrinsic part of misogyny and femicide and rape culture. Has there been any review backlash against? posing such an interesting question about women characters as friends of patriarchy, friends of violence against women, where where are the men? Because in the real social world, we are obviously the most important protagonist in oppressing you. Absolutely. But that's the fascinating part of, of this book. I think, uh, yes, of course, uh, the men are there. Um, they're the ones who are the leaders. Mm. They are the ones who have imposed uh, this kind of society <laughs> upon women. Mm. But I think what makes this interesting is that, you know, to try and flip things on its head. Makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Makes sense. But also in the real world, if we keep it real, um, sometimes toxic men are helped out by Aunt Lydia. Yes, that's exactly the point. So if you look at the United States, you've got women in the Republican Party who are very much supporting the men who are bringing in these restrictive laws mm -hmm. of, of reproductive rights, of, uh, of abortion and that sort of thing. There are women who are supporting this, who are supporting the men who are doing this. Mm. They are the Aunt Lydia's. 100%. 
Absolutely fascinating. O double one double eight three oh seven oh two. Uh we do have to take a break. Unfortunately, I just want to listen to to Andrea the whole the whole day. Uh, Brendan is is enjoying your description of Margaret um, Atwood as well. Uh, Brendan, we'll take you in a second. Let's just have a little bit of a breather. Literature Corner. 17 minutes after 11, it is the Literature Corner. We're doing some book reviews. Andrew van Veek is with us, arts and book journalist, also sub-editor at ENCA. Hello, Brendan. Yes, hi. Um, I just wanted to show some appreciation for Margaret Atwood's uh, work. I'm really an avid fan of hers. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I think for, I mean, a, a, a kind of feminist essentialism, Margaret Atwood is kind of just... Uh, it kind of it gives me entry into you know, a kind of intimate view of the world and a view of society. Oh, Brendan, let's do this. We're going to call you back because I am intrigued by your appreciation for her, including the feminist analysis and how helpful that is to all of us, but especially to male readers. And let's see whether either you can walk around or stay in a clear place and whether we can uh, just have you have you back around that. Maybe just speak into that for, for a couple of seconds. Uh, how important uh, is she as, as an author? Incredibly important. Um, she, uh, this is the first time she's won the Booker, so she never even won the Booker for The Handmaid's Tale. Um, but she has won a Booker Prize for one of her other novels, The Blind Assassin. Mm. Um, this her feminism comes through in almost all of her books. Um, but she doesn't, it's not necessarily the focus. It's a theme. Mm. Um, so she doesn't necessarily write to feminism, um, but it comes across mm. in all of her works. Mm. So definitely a theme and an ideology that, that, that's a thread across them all. Go ahead, Brendan. I think we can hopefully hear you better now. Yes, yeah. No, I just, I just wanted to say, you know, Margaret Atwood is just, I think, one of the most phenomenal writers and unappreciated as well of the century. I think as many young men as possible should read her work. It's just phenomenally deep and interesting mm. from beginning to end of her oeuvre. It's, it's really fantastic. Absolutely. Um, and I look forward to reading the... the is, is this a new book that's coming out now? Yes, it's The because Testaments and it's the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Looking forward to reading it. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks so much uh, for calling in. And by the way, if you want to do a quick review, you can do so. Tell me the last book you read, a brief description, but unlike Andrea, I'm only going to give you 60 seconds. Name the book, summate it, and tell me what you hated or loved most about it. And finally, the money question, would you recommend someone buy it? The thumbs up or a thumbs down? Oh, double one double eight three oh seven oh two. What else have you been reading of, of late? So another book that I brought with that I think you'd enjoy at Eusebius is called Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. Oh, my cousin keeps going on about this book. If he's listening, he knows he does. And actually, I, I haven't read it. You have I know, to read I know. This. It's one of those books that you, you should read. It's mm. it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's, it's it's quite a long read, but it's well worth it. I read it while I was on holiday. So uh, the, the 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 quote that they've pulled from the book says the different historical trajectories trajectories of Africa and Europe stem ultimately from differences in real estate. And so we've got this eternal question about why certain societies progressed at a faster rate than others. Mm. And very often, especially in the past, the answers have been incredibly racist. Mm. Um, and, you know, saying that it's a matter of genetics. 
Um, and Jared Diamond argues that, in fact, this is not true, that it's all to do with the agricultural revolution. And um, so, for example, just a, just a quick example. I mean, the book is the book is quite uh, goes into a lot of detail um, and the minutia of how this exactly this work works. But um, the agricultural revolution saw different societies. Um, uh, 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 what's the right word now? Domesticate plants. Yeah and domesticate mm. certain animals in order to uh, produce agriculture as we now know it. Um, and certain areas of the world were more suitable for this than other areas. So, for example, in Europe, you had an incredible number of plants that could be domesticated and animals that could do the same to help you mm. in your agricultural revolution. Mm. Whereas some other areas, so for example, in Africa, there were very few animals suitable and very few plants suitable to do this. Um, and that's not the fault of anyone. That's just the way that things fell. That's mm. the way the cookie crumbled, mm. basically. And so, for example, if you look at the kind of animals that we have in Africa, zebras, hippos, lions, I mean, these are big animals, but they could never be domesticated. You can tame them. But even contemporary scientists and biologists um, have never been able to domesticate them so that you could use them for agriculture, so that you could use them eventually to fight your battles for you, your wars, and help you explore the world. So uh, Jared Diamond very cleverly uh, talks about geography and biogeography and how that is hmm. how people manage to conquer others. Mm. It's, it's an incredible read about how the world has been divided into the haves and the have-nots, but how this happened. Bandile, good morning. Hey, how's it going, man? Good. How's it going with you, friend? I'm great. I'm great. I, I, I left out of my seat when I heard about Guns, Gems, and Steel. <laughs> um, it's my, my all-time favorite uh, non-fiction book, actually. Oh, wow. That's high praise uh, coming from you. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was it's actually very funny. It's a, it's a science book, a science-based book, which actually had a lot of impact uh, on my political thoughts. Uh, funny enough, um, mm. the Jared Diamond really pulled together. It's one of those like masterful pieces of work that pulled together science and biology um, mm. and showed how it links into history. Mm. Um, so the other major theme, other than agriculture, uh, is the theme of uh, sort of technology transfer. So you get a sense that Europeans have been dominating the world because of various latitudes um reasons, reasons around uh, how river systems uh, facilitate trade, is that mm. Europeans, because of where the, the, the geographic lack of where they're located, were able to gather all the technologies of the old world. So, you know, you often hear that, oh, well, gunpowder comes from China, and, you know, there, there's the numbering system that comes from India, and this comes from this region. And so Europeans were able to pick up and accumulate all that knowledge, and then that's what set them up in the in you know the 1500s to uh, be able to spread those technologies and conquer the world. So, from a even a philosophical or a political perspective, it shows you that um, it, it, it like it has a thorough thorough debunking of the idea that some societies have progressed better 
because we've got like smarter people or like Europeans mm. blessed by God with more information. Um, it's actually about how uh, human intelligence and human innovation mm. uh, is a matter of luck. Uh, and <laughs> for me, that was like, oh, I actually breathed a, a sigh of relief. <laughs> No, 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 no I, 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 I understand the weight of, of your of your breathing that you did. You know what I love is I'm yeah. listening to your description of it, Bandile, and also to Andrea. It reminds me of one of the most exciting university courses anywhere in the world that someone could have done uh, would have been uh, The History of the World by Professor Julian Cobbin, uh, Cobbing mm-hmm. at a Rhodes University. I think he's retired now. And I love that course so much. I actually did it twice, even though I did it the first time and did it well. I sat in every single lecture a second time. And he banged on about this book, and I didn't read it then, but I'm going to read it now on your recommendation, Andreas, is that we often do not pay sufficient attention to the history of things and the history of events and mm-hmm. think that we can understand power only through human beings and here you have real incredible contingencies about mother nature like geography that can have a profound impact on society when we think it is only the actions and the agency of actual persons that that account for 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 human history mm. um yeah i think that's a, that's a, that's a great summary. so it is quite thick um, but it's written, again, in a, a, a very clear, lucid way. I was going to ask you that, yeah, because one of my colleagues said that it looks intimidating. Is it readable? Yeah. Sorry? Is it readable? Yeah, very highly readable. I think Jared Diamond is one of our best uh, science writers. Mm. Um, uh, almost like Bill, I think it's not Bill, Bill someone else, mm. um, who wrote um, a, a Brief History of Everything. Sure. Um, and, it, it, and those connections between politics and 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 geography and history and whatever are made in like really mm. understandable ways, sort of thing. Thank you. I love that. Thanks, Bandile. I totally agree with you. You you in turn agree with him. Absolutely. Um, he, he gave quite a nice summary about it and he's not the only one who thinks that it's the best nonfiction book. Time magazine named it as one of the best nonfiction books ever written. Mm. And it won the Pulitzer Prize as well. It's and it's it's accessible. It's not that hard to read. Yes, it does look intimidating, but once you get going, you'll just be so fascinated by Out it. Out of pure voyeuristic interest, because with our work as as book journalists, we often read the most current books because they land on our desk and people want like a hot take on the thing that's hottest off the press. What made you go into this classic well, it's just been republished. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so okay. I got sent a copy. Like, um, this is, uh, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not even sure which edition this is. Not an old is. version you find in the second-hand store. No, okay. no, this is, a, this is the latest edition um, of this book. I mean, I think it was written in 1997. So, but it's a, it, so it is a classic by now, but I've only just read it. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's been republished, and that's how I managed to lay my hands on it. <laughs> Beautiful. Kabaza. Very quickly, before we run out of time, uh, what do you want to review for us? My third best book I've ever read, the memoir or the musical memoir of Huma Sikela, um, Still Grazing. Hmm. You you know, you read a book and you need maybe three or six months to just let go of it Mm. because it's that good. Yes. Um, I think Huma Sikela is, you know, top two best lived lives in South Africa. Um, 
And it, what, the reason why I love the book so much is because it takes you through a time journey. So, you know, he, he was born in the, in the 30s, um, and he literally lived in a time where apartheid um, isn't, you know, officially um, installed, so to speak. And then he goes through the 60s um, in London and the States, and then he comes back to Africa after independence, and then... Um, 90, 1990 and 94 South Africa, you literally go through um, a wonderful 70-year journey of life, you know, of one of South Africa's most prolific um, and genius um, artists and musicians. Um, yeah, that, that everyone has to read so grazing. Um, the genius of Yuma Sikela and understanding where the music came from, what it was inspired by, and also understanding um, why he was the way that he was. I think it's someone that we haven't taken the time to understand. Um, I agree. I think that's right, yeah. I think that's right. I'm certainly very curious. I've seen that title around a lot. Is it a beautifully written book, besides being an interesting uh, way to understand factually the life and times of the man, in terms of the quality Um, of of the writing? Yes, and, and, and... you know, and, and understanding why he felt so passionately about particular issues that, you know, he deemed controversial in this country. Um, he went through a lot, and I think psychologically, as someone who lived through a pre-apartheid, you know, um, era, and then watching his life change, you know, from 1948, and then becoming um, a superstar and, you know, being... Oh, we just lost it there, but that recommendation there, also top of mind. Andrea, thanks so much for coming in. Um, and for doing your brilliant reviews as you always do. What are you currently reading, by the way? Are you ever not reading? Ne- no, <laughs> I'm never not reading. I'm always reading something. So no, at the moment, I'm reading a, a sort of a very witty, dry humor spy novel, but it's about failed spies. It's about oh. people who are miserable failures, who uh, have messed up in some of the worst ways possible, and then they're completely inept, and then somehow, always, they manage to, in their bumbling, fumbling way, help out the UK. <laughs> also, funny you should say that. As you said that, I was about to to chirp. It sounds like a, a gigantic subtweet of Boris Johnson or someone. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Really appreciate having you Thank on the you show. Thank you for having me.